More prayer, less worry. That's what we're going to talk about. More prayer. Right? The golf course, right? So let's start off in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Pray for one another. Let's, let's do that. Let's turn to someone near you and uh, just, Lord, would you bless this person? Just simple as that. Back and forth. Just pray for someone. Right? See that? It's good to be obedient to the word, right? Pray for one another that you may be healed. Now this is why. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer is effective because God has designed us to be affected by prayer. Should I say that again? Prayer is effective because God has designed us to be affected by prayer. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, last, last week, leading into last week, I got a call from a family out of Massachusetts. Um, not even sure how I connected with them, but some time ago, and... Um, their son had visited a few times, and uh, they had discovered that he was deep, deep, deep into huffing um, industrial chemicals. He had locked himself in a house all alone. Uh, worst of conditions, very worst of conditions. Um, had totally disconnected from the parents, but his brother had some type of dialogue with him, would I be willing to do an intervention with the family? And I said, I gotta tell you, it's not gonna work. You all go bombarding in there, it's just gonna make it worse. Please don't do that. If you really want an intervention, find out the legalities and have it done professionally so that all of you don't get wounded for the next 20 years because of what his response will be. So the brother and the sister came up and um, we prayed together, we talked about uh, what he, what the brother wanted to do, and I agreed with that, and uh, went down there, and I said, "But I'll tell you, if if a demon manifests, I'm taking over. That's that's it. Just going to handle it from there." So we pull in the driveway. The brother's in the front car, and the sister and I in the back car. And the brother gets out of the car. He's got his phone in his hand, and he said. A half a block away, he called me and he said, what the F are you doing bringing that pastor here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Said, so, you know, he's informed already. So we go into the place, smelled like death. It really did. It smelled like death. He had bolted himself in a back, back bedroom, uh, just cursing and swearing, rejecting the brother. The brother comes comes out of there, he's sobbing his heart out, the sister goes in, she just pushes the door right in, bombards right in there, and he's, get out of here, she, don't tell me, you owe me this, and da-da-da. So a little bit of his abuse, and she come out, and she's crying, and said, you know, we've done what we can do, and we leave. And so as she's going through her stuff, I get closer to the door, because I thought if this guy begins to get violent, I want to get in between them. And... Um, 
as I'm standing, I'm just praying, and then I began to just pray in tongues, just very quietly. And when I did, the Lord said, you are dropping seeds by your prayer. You are dropping seeds right now. Just left it there. So they, they went home. They're very discouraged. The parents called me from Massachusetts, very discouraged, but thanked me for my time. And I just said, you know, it's not over. It's not over, because I know when you drop a seed, something's going to happen. And um, I got a text message from the sister the next morning. She said, he called me at 3 a.m. What would it look like if you helped me get into rehab? A seed opened up. A seed. So the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Right? It's really important that we understand the value of our prayers, the value of praying, the value of stepping out. Even if you're not praying specifically in the presence of someone, to just throw out those seeds of prayer. Right? So think about someone that could use some encouragement, use some deliverance, use some rescuing, use some reconciliation. Uh, form a little prayer seed right now and just th- speak it right out. Throw it right out there. Go ahead. Just pray for somebody you can think about right now. Everybody knows somebody that needs prayer, right? All right. So the truth of the matter is that in this sin-tarnished fallen world, we're all affected by a lot of things, aren't we? Yeah. External threats to our well-being affect the quality of our internal world. The world of our perceptions, our emotions, and our ability to rationally reason through the circumstances of life. As John Milton, the 17th century author and poet, puts it, The mind, I love this, the mind is its own place. (laughs) Run around with that for a while, right? The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Huh? Is that a powerful statement? Wow. Or as someone once said, How can you have victory in your mind when the enemy has an outpost there? The battle is in the mind, huh? So we may find ourselves on Sunday morning in a state of enraptured bliss as we sing songs of worship and in full agreement with the preacher concerning Christian theology or lifestyle or values, and yet... There are some of us who may deal with issues of anger and rage, especially with those closest to us. There may be some here today whose life encounters have so violated the sanctity of their minds that their inner world has created alternative personalities to defend their well-being. The mind is its own place. Some resort to lying to or manipulating friends and caring people to satisfy their own feelings of worthlessness or low self-esteem. And for some, that inner world is in such turmoil and confusion that even prayer adds to the pain. 
I'll be honest, has there ever been a time when you've not, or you've been afraid to pray? I have. I'm not praying about that. Every time I pray, things get worse. What the heck is going on? You know, it seems to happen sometimes, you know. God begins to take charge of the circumstances, and it looks like they're getting really, really out there, and all of a sudden, bang, here's this resolve out of nowhere, you know. Sometimes we feel defeated by prayer life because prayer is just another internal space to worry in. So this is a two-part message. Both are going to happen today. First, we'll look at our own human propensity towards stress-filled living as opposed to living what Jesus called life more abundant. And see if the Holy Spirit will help us overcome some of these issues. And then I want to give you a three-step model for prayer that will help you turn from worry to confident, faith-filled living. That sound good? Yeah, yeah, it's all today. And we get to play a round of golf. Right? I've been with the Abbots for a month. I, do you ever hang out with Jeremy Abbott? I mean, every other word is golf or club or whole or, you know, and he just lives there. So Matthew eleven twenty eight. this is a great launch point. This is Jesus speaking. I know it because it's written in red. Uh, what? <laughs> isn't, isn't it in red in yours? Get a new Bible, man. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that a good invitation? Mm. Do you know why we worry? Simplest answer is because we can. That's it. As far as I know, we are the only part of the created order with the ability to worry. Other things can feel fear or even panic, but they don't worry. Okay? Here's a scenario that has been played out over and over again since before we can remember. The scene is the Serengeti Plains of Africa, and you and I are now gazelles. Okay? I'm Dick, the worry-free gazelle, and you are Bambi. And we are just kind of gazelling around without any worries, nibbling the tops off of the tall grass and drinking water from the local pond. Then suddenly, Dick, the worry-free gazelle, sees movement in the tall grass over near Bambi, and the response is fight, flight, or freeze, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. Well, gazelles don't fight. Bambi freezes, and Dick, the worry-free gazelle, takes off running, and the last thing he sees is Bambi getting dragged into the tall grass as today's lunch for the local Lions Club. Mm. Mm. Welcome to Monday morning in worry-free gazelle land. Monday afternoon, Dick the worry-free gazelle is gazelling around, nibbling the tops off of the tall grass with his new friend, Jack the gazelle, drinking water from the local pond. Why? Because to worry is to have the ability 
inside our minds to project your circumstances into future possibilities. With varying, varying outcomes or consequences, and only humans can do that, gazelles cannot. So Dick, the worry-free gazelle, will continue to come back to the tall grass and cool water until he also one day gets taken out for lunch. But for humans, it seems like worry is the thing we prefer to do. Sometimes we worry so much that the worry begins to incapacitate us. We can't do anything except worry. Going through life believing that more things can go wrong than can go right. We worry that we won't get what we need, and when we do get it, we worry that we will lose it. Right? If you're that type of person, do not invest in stocks and bonds. Okay? James 4, beginning verse 1. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he, that is God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Hang on to that. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. At the core of all of this, both the prayer aspect and the turmoil aspect, there is a key dynamic at work, and that is, relationships. The prayer aspect is relational in that it connects us to God, and we structure our prayer based on how we believe God will in turn relate back to us as we pray. Think about how you pray to God. What are the types of words you use? What is the type of attitude? Do you go to God begging? Like he's not a good God who wants to give you grace? Do you go to God with all your excuses? Like he's not the all-knowing God and <laughs> doesn't have a clue what you've been up to for the last year, right? right? Or do you go to God self-abusive with your words? Like he doesn't love you like the prodigal son. Your perception of who he is will structure how you pray. If you understand that he loved you enough to give his life for you, then you'll pray with passion, with a yearning for 
relational interaction, like you're talking to a friend who longs to draw close to you, who hasn't been rebuffed by the mistakes that you make. The turmoil aspect and the reason we worry so much is also relational. Simply stated, we worry about how what we do will be perceived by or responded to by others. Try preparing to speak publicly. Right? You'll worry about how people will receive what you have to say or how about this? Lie to someone you trust or do something you know is wrong to do. You will worry about how someone is going to respond if they find out. You see, it's all relational. And it all happens up in here. The New Testament deals with several incidents of relational stress and the fruit of what worry produces. Remember, worry is to have the ability inside our minds to project our circumstances into future possibilities with varying outcomes or consequences. Acts 13, beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off, kind of like what we did with the group from Franklin today. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now, most theologians and the scripture will validate, uh, this is John Mark. This is not the apostle John. This is John Mark, okay? So Acts 13, 13, this is a little while later. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So they're traveling, they're going by boat. And if you read the book of Acts, you know that uh, Paul developed a certain uh, thing that he would do. He'd come into a city, he'd go to the synagogue, and he'd preach Christ to the Jews. Now, sometimes that would go well. Sometimes you get the tar beaten out of them, you know. So obviously... Uh, something a little stressful took place, and John Mark said, uh, I'm really not cut out for this, and the farther from home I go, the more terrifying this seems, so I'm going back, see you guys later, and he jumps ship and goes back to Jerusalem. Okay, that's where it is. So two chapters later, uh, Paul and Barnabas have made their tour. They've come back to where they were. There's been some time. It says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Let's go visiting the churches we planted. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Remember who he is? He's the guy that jumped ship, right? Turned around mid-course. 
But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So what's Paul doing? He's beginning to worry about John Mark. Right now, he's probably a good reason because John Mark had acted that way in the past, but Paul isn't thinking so much about the past. He's now projecting into the possibilities of the future. Well, if he did that then, what's he going to do next time? And I know it can get pretty rough out there because we all already did a full circuit. I don't know if I want to take this guy, Bonham. You know, didn't work out all that well. I'm, I'm just afraid he's going he's to really cause some trouble for us. And there arose a sharp disagreement between Saul and Barnabas so that they separated from each other. So what just happened? A relationship. A relationship. Two guys that had traveled proclaiming the gospel, planted church together, you know, gone through dangers together. You know, all, all that's involved with what they did now because of one disagreement, because of some worry, have been split apart. Their relationship has broken down. Okay? It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, does it? Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Paul was worried about John Mark. His worry caused him to project John Mark's past actions into their future possibilities, and the worry caused sharp disagreement that led to the breakdown of what had been a strong relationship between Paul and Barnabas. Have you lost a friendship the last couple of years? Think about the circumstances. Think about what was going on in your mind, not what they did. It's easy to say it's always all their fault. But what's going on in your head? But Paul discovered what I hope you'll discover as we look at a new approach to prayer. Because toward the end of his life, as he's in a Roman prison waiting to be martyred for his faith, Paul writes to Timothy with a request. 2 Timothy 4.7. He says to him, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, righteousness, right? The prayer of a righteous man, what? Works powerfully, right? right so Paul, Paul has got his crown of righteousness. So he's a righteous man who can pray powerfully. Okay? And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Uh, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Then here's, here's the kicker. Get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you. Now, who's Mark? Right? This is a guy, he's, I don't want him. I don't want him coming. For he is very useful to me for ministry. The very thing he rejected Mark about ministry, he's now calling Mark to himself for. The one Paul once worried about has now become very useful and asked for. 
God took Paul's worry and turned it into something good. And he can do it for us. I want you to think about your top worry. Think about how it has been affecting the quality of your life. What's the thing that is at work in your mind right now? Over the last two weeks, over the last month, over the last six months, what are you worrying about? Hmm? Is there anyone who doesn't have a worry in this room? All right. So you all got something you're working with right now, right? Okay. Now let's see if we can turn this thing around. Remember where we started, James 5, 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer is effective because God has designed us to be affected by prayer. So let's repeat this. My prayer has great power when it is working. Say that. My prayer has great power when it is working. All right. Keep that in the same place where you're keeping your worry right now. Put it in the same slot, okay? So I want you to give, I want to give you some tools to help you to pray powerfully and effectively so that you can affect your world in a powerful way for the kingdom of God and in a way that will help you tame rather than inflame the inner turmoil that we just spoke about. And if you don't relate to any of that, then... It'll just help you pray in a deeper way and improve your life generally. So we talked about Paul's conflict with Barnabas over John Mark, a conflict so deep that it split up their friendship, and yet in the end, Paul was able to ask for John Mark's presence with genuine affection. So how did he process through all of that? We don't find it clearly stated in the Bible that Paul felt so bad about Barnabas and John Mark that he did steps one, two, and three. But if Paul found a means of reconciling his own heart to this situation, then I believe he would pass this knowledge on to the church so that others can have peace also. Because that's what Paul does, right? And I believe I've found that instruction. It emerges out of a conflict in the church. Yes, you heard me right, conflict in the church. Almost unbelievable, right? The church is the church at Philippi. So Philippians 4, beginning verse 1, this is Paul writing to the Philippians, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now here he goes right away. I entreat Judea, and I entreat Syntyche. These are two women to agree in the Lord. So there's division in the church. There's a split. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. These are two women, apostolic, by the way, who had traveled with Paul, church planting throughout Asia Minor, right? Now he left them in Philippi. He finds out there's a disagreement between them. There's a split in their relationship. And where do you think he goes to in his head? I remember when that happened with me and Barnabas. That day really sucked. You know, my best friend, he goes this way and I got to go this way. It was not good, right? You guys got to help these ladies out, right? So what's the obvious question? Well, great, how do we do that? How do you do that, right? So verse 4 in the same chapter, 
he says this. Here's his instructions. You've got to come right out of verse 3. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known made to God, be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any any excellence. If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I want you to encapsulate that as Paul's instructions to how to handle a breach in relationship, the breakdown of a friendship. Okay? First of all, I want you to take note that Paul concludes this statement with an admonition to practice these things. Practice these things. These are principles to live by, not just a quick fix, drive-through window order, thank you very much, I'm on my way again, solution. Right? Practice these things. When we practice something, we rewire the synaptics of our brains to respond to the practice response instead of whatever our prior response used to be. That's what practice is all about. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. This is our natural worry response, and it locks us into an internal cycle of rehearsing what the outcome might be and how bad it could be, etc., etc., etc. You're all familiar with how that works, right? All of what we've been talking about. Do not be anxious about anything because, because the Lord is at hand. Now, maybe, just maybe, although it's often preached this way, maybe Paul is not talking eschatology. Maybe he's not saying the end of time is just around the corner, so get your, get your stuff right. Get your stuff in order. Maybe he's not saying that. The Lord is at hand. Maybe he's talking about presence. You catching that? His nearness. So Paul suggests instead practice this. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. How do you do that? You do it right here because the Lord is present. The Lord is near at hand, right? Reach out to him. And we all have an idea or perhaps even a model of what prayer looks like, but prayer and supplication, does anyone even know what supplication is? Sounds like something you do at a meal, right? Like intense. So here it is. Supplication in this usage 
It's in Strong's, it's uh, in the Greek, number 1162, it's deesis, deesis. It's a petition, a prayer, a request, a supplication. But it comes from a much more meaningful root word, which is putho, putho. A primary word, which when used in conjunction with other words, such as deesis, includes the following elements of prayer dialogue. To question. To question, Lord, what's going on? What is happening in my mind? What is happening to this relationship? Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? To question, that is, to ascertain by inquiry as a matter of information. Could you give me some wisdom? I don't understand. A request for favor. Lord, I know that you're full of grace. The word says that you're full of grace and compassion and understanding and loving kindness. And boy, I could use some of that right now. A demand for something due. Right? Am I not your son? Lord, have you forgotten that you called me out of darkness to be your own? Am I not part of your family? Can I not come to my loving father and make a request known to him? Right? God's a big guy. He can take prayer like that, get a little intense, right? It's all in the supplication. As well as a search for something hidden and the idea of urgent need. By implication to learn, ask, demand, inquire, and understand. And that is just a fraction of what is implicit in the act of supplication. It is, in fact, a deep well of intimate communication of the deepest needs and longings of the heart to the only available source of remedy. Proverbs 25.2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal things. Not an odd thing to say. It's the glory of God to conceal things. Why? Because it's the glory of kings, and you are a nation of kings and priests, right? It's the glory of kings to search things out. The only reason God hides anything from us is that we would search it out from him to make it our own. It's relational, and the deeper he hides it, the more intimate you have to get with him in order to acquire what he has for you. Jesus has all kinds of parables that talk about that. The unjust judge and, you know, knock, 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 seek, ask, you know, all of that stuff. That's what this is all about. God has hidden things for you. In other words, God is inviting us to get bold with our prayers, to pray with what I would term an empowered expectation of a response from the lover of your soul. Supplication is like asking on steroids. And asking is important. James 4, 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Right? Worrying about something in your mind is not prayer. I'm telling you, I ask me, you've been praying about that? Oh, yeah, I pray all the time I'm praying about it. I don't think so. I think you're worrying about it. I think you're rehearsing it, but I don't think you're praying it. Right? 
grumbling to yourself or to others about your problems is not prayer. Accusing others of being the reason for your situation or the way you feel is not prayer. Again, James says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Oh, I've been praying about this for six months now. God doesn't listen to me. He's not doing anything for me. You're not praying. It's just churning. It's just churning. You're asking wrong. Prayer must be and must remain God-focused. Otherwise, it becomes something other than prayer. Prayer should be like a good golf swing. Here we go. <laughs> I don't know what a good golf swing looks like. So do we have a good golf swinger in here anyway? Eric, are you a good golf swinger? Well, come on up here. Description I found. Okay, so prayer should be like a good, a good golf swing. I'm not a golfer, but this is how I read it described. The golfer first addresses the ball. Hi, little ball. How are you today? <laughs> All right. So, are you addressing the ball? Yeah, so do so you see what he's doing? He's, he's adjusting how he stands and how that, the head of that club is going to impact the ball. He's just, you know, addressing it. How, how's this going to work, right? Okay. All right, but then, looking to the flag on the green, he lines up his body along the axis. He wants the ball to travel. So he's going from here to way down there, right? All of this is part of the preparation, okay? Next comes the backswing. Arms extended and the club raised. So just hold it up there. Look at that, huh? Is that a, take a picture, get them, send this into golf, what, what's a golf magazine? Golf, golfing, you know? <laughs> okay, extending the club raised. Poised, poised, he is now poised. <laughs> now, now, don't go full swing on this yet, all right? Poised for the downswing when the golfer pivots his hips just as the club, so nice and slow, pivots the hips just as the club face strikes the ball, transferring the full weight of the swing to the ball. The swing is one fluid motion with three components, the address, the backswing, and the downswing with the pivot. So let's try that. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Hole in one. Nice. Job. 
a round of applause. I knew he was good, but I didn't know how good. So, <laughs> All right, so address the ball. The ball represents your problem. The ball represents your problem, your worry, your situation. And notice where the ball is. It's at your feet, not in your head. You look down at it and prepare yourself to drive it down the fairway, but before you do you look off toward the flag. So essentially, you look at your worry, and then you orient yourself toward God. This is where I'm going to send my worry. I'm going to look that way. Colossians 3.2 says this, Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Right? Look off to that flag off in the distance. That's where you want your worries to go. This way, you align and connect yourself to where you're going to send the ball, this worry, this problem, rather than ruminating on where this problem is going to send you. Hmm? Psalm 16, 8 and 9 says this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken Therefore, my heart is glad. Remember what Paul said? Rejoice again, I say. Rejoice. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. He's right here by your hand. Not soon coming. He's already here. He's with you. He's in you. He's beside you. He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Rejoice. The Lord is right at hand. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. A good way to make this kind of connection is to find a connecting term of endearment. Okay? I'll give you an example of this is Jesus in Luke 22. It says, And he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Abba. In Hebrew, it would be Abba, or Father. A term of endearment. That was his connecting word. Do you have a way that you address the Lord that is deep and intimate in its meaning for you and for the Lord? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus oriented himself toward his Father in heaven, and heaven responded. The backswing. This is the preparatory motion toward the full swing. Confess any known sin or offense, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any unknown sin and then confess that, Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me 
and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You're just focusing on that flag that he has set down the fairway. Remember our initial scripture in James 5, the prayer of a righteous person. In Psalm 24, 3, it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the whole purpose of this preparatory work is to establish a sense of righteousness in your prayer. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And at this point, you are righteous too. So let's begin to pray about your situation. Ask, seek, knock, plead, pray with boldness, pray with expecting, pray until you hear his reply or sense his peace in your heart. And then the downswing with pivot. The downswing is the driving force of the momentum that you create in prayer. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. See that power? It's as that motion, as that downswing, as that hip pivots. It's the working of that prayer. You're intimately involved in the prayer that you're petitioning out. You're intimately involved in the stroke of that to drive that thing down the, down the fairway. The pivot shifts our focus, and we now begin to orient ourselves towards where we have driven the ball, toward the one we have sent our prayers and supplications to. The pivot is simply this. We move into praise and thanksgiving. Paul's initial response to the church was, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. I thank you, Father. I thank you that you've heard my prayer, that you love me and will move toward what is best for me. I thank you for answering this prayer. And on and on and on, just an attitude of gratefulness. You have shifted your stance from worry and fret in your mind to this posture, looking down the fairway where your problems have been driven by the Holy Spirit and by your righteousness, and you begin to give thanks. And I thank you, O God, that you have done this. My whole focus is no longer at my feet. It's now towards heaven itself and the gratefulness that I have for a God who loves me. Why do we do this? Because Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith makes us sure of what we hope for and gives us proof of what we cannot see. Seeds of prayer. Seeds of prayer. And faith is the driving force behind every kingdom-centered life. Faith-fueled prayer. It's powerful, powerful prayer. Let's stand together.